0: We'll open your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Hopefully that's not a section of your Bible where the pages are still stuck together. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. We're in a series that we began last week called the DNA of Mission Road Bible Church. As you know, DNA are those small molecular parts of our cell which inform who we are, determine what we're like. And we've talked about the fact that we want to go back to what's the DNA of our church, the constituent parts, our convictions, our core values that shape who we are and what we do and why we do what we do. Well, for today, we're going to turn our attention to what it means to have a high view of God. Having a high view of God. Let me read part of... David's prayer in First Chronicles chapter 29, beginning in verse 10, and this will give us uh, plenty of data to inform what we need to have to have a high view of God. First Chronicles 29, 10. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly, and David said, "'Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever.'" Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all, and in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. It's not an overstatement to say that we have become intoxicated by the media and the world so that very few people really recognize greatness anymore. This was brought home to me many years ago, quite memorably, as I was putting one of our sons to bed on a Saturday night when he was four years old. Let me give you a little parenting advice. Going to Chuck E. Cheese on a Saturday night is a bad idea. Kim and I took our boys on a Saturday night with another friend and their family, friends and family, and... uh, You've heard me say that before that Sunday morning begins Saturday night. Remember that when you consider going to Chuck E. Cheese on a Saturday night. I should have listened to my own advice. Don't get me wrong, I, I, I think Chuck E. Cheese is wonderful. Wonderful. I think they have really good pizza. But the exchange between my son and me that night was sobering. I bent down beside his bed at bedtime to tell him how I appreciated the Lord giving him to me and we were going to pray together. And It was Saturday night so I I was saying, it's so exciting because tomorrow we get to go to worship God at church. And he said, well, can we, remember, four years old, can we also go to Chuck E. Cheese tomorrow? No, we're not going to go tomorrow. And he got quite upset. I finally got him calmed down enough to talk to him and ask him, why are you so upset? And he told me, Daddy, Daddy, Chuck E. Cheese is way better than church. Now think about that for a minute. What he's really saying is that the contents of Chuck E. Cheese, a bunch of poorly animated figures, some video games, some tubes to crawl in and get stuck in if you're a dad, are more attractive than the contents of church. That might be easy to justify and understand as a four-year-old. Chuck E. Cheese is all about fun. Church should be all about God. What is more attractive to you than the God we come to celebrate and worship with each other on a Sunday morning at church? What competes with that? Do you struggle to be focused and attentive when you're here? Is it possible that you sometimes consider the contents of a Sunday morning and everything we do dull, boring, irrelevant? Let's dig in a little deeper. I think at the heart of all commitment to God is our understanding of God's greatness. Let me say it another way. Show me what you're committed to and I can easily show you what you think is great. John Piper has rightfully and insightfully penned this sentence. Two sentences, actually. People are starving for the greatness of God, but most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The the majesty of God is an unknown cure. We're starving for the greatness of God. Do we know it? Do we recognize it? Do we feel it? Do we sense it? Do we find Him satisfying that hunger and that thirst of our soul? I am convinced, and I'm more and more convinced the older I get, that a great vision of a great God is the key to life. It's the key to the church. It's the key to all evangelism and missionary outreach. A generation ago, A.W. Pink Bemoaned the problem of a wrong and low view of God. This is what he wrote. The God of this century no more resembles the sovereign God of holy writ than does the dim flickering of a candle, the glory of the midday sun. The God who is talked about in the average pulpit, spoken of in ordinary Sunday schools, mentioned in the much, much of religious literature of the day and preached in most of the so-called Bible conferences is a fragment of of human imagination, a figment, rather, of human imagination and an invention of maudlin sentimentality. The heathen outside the pale of Christendom manufacture a God of their carnal minds. In reality, they are but atheists, for there is no other possible alternative between an absolute supreme God and no God at all. A God whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, Possess, who possesses no title to deity and far from being a fit object of worship, me, means nothing, merits nothing but contempt. This is no God," End quote. So how can we shape our view of God to that which brings him glory and brings us the satisfaction that our souls desperately desire? Well. We open our Bibles and we begin to learn what God is like and wash our brains from the intuitive notions that we naturally gravitate to about God. As I said, we've begun a series here at Mission Road on the DNA of our church. In other words, what are the constituent elements of what we believe that hold prevailing influence over what we do as a church? Why do we do what we do? We want to answer that in this coming series that I'll share with the staff. For today, I want us to think about how a high view of God shapes our lives and ministries. Now, when you drop into 1 Chronicles chapter 29, you're obviously in the last chapter of that book. If you'll turn the page, you can see that. And this is an interesting, very, very compelling, interesting chapter. Because you find at the end of it, the death of David and the the final subsequent... There was about three times that David laid his hands on Solomon to be king. You'll find the final uh, installment of him as the king at the end. But this is... This is an interesting moment because David is collecting an offering for the temple so that Solomon can build it. And David was not allowed to build the temple he so longed to build for God. Why? Because of his sin. But he was a part of the collection of the resources that would be needed to build this temple. God prescribed that a temple be built, a building be built as a place of worship and sacrifice and the people desired it. Its primary function, as you well remember, was to house the Ark of the Covenant, which on top of which sat the mercy seat, where the the Day of Atonement, blood was poured over so that people were forgiven of sins. It was the means that God had given to forgive sin. It was accomplished through a sacrificial system of the day. The Ark of the Covenant was moved around several times. First of all, it made its way across the the wilderness, or the wilderness journeys, and it was housed in the tabernacle, remember, the, the tent where they, uh, uh, they built so that God's uh, small imitation of what would ultimately become the temple. You remember that it, after they got to Israel, it was held for a while in Shechem, for a while in Silo. It was even stolen by the Philistines, And there's an incredible, I think it's 1 Samuel 5, account of where the the god Dagon, the idol Dagon, uh, lost pretty bad and fell on his face. And then the people were, were afflicted, the men were afflicted with tumors. And I'll let you look up in the Hebrew what that word really means. When David captured Jerusalem, the ark was moved finally there where the future site of the temple would be built. The Temple Mount was where it was chosen to, to reside. It was Mount Moriah, as you'll remember well. That was where Abraham built the altar on which he was going to sacrifice his son Isaac, and the ram in the thicket was caught as the perfect sacrifice for God and for Isaac. All to say, the time came to build the amazing structure of the temple. And David initiated a call to the people. He knew he couldn't build it, but he knew before he died, he could raise money for it. It's so fun, by the way, to preach this passage when we're not in a giving campaign. This is not a giving sermon. It's a worship sermon. But I've heard this this, uh, rightfully applied to giving to the Lord and for the Lord and for, for buildings that honor the Lord. And maybe that's for another day, but not today, okay? Let's pick up the story and get some running momentum beginning in verse 1. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 1. Then King David said to the entire assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced. The work is great. For the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. We're going to build this temple. Solomon's going to inherit the oversight of it. But it's not for men, it's for the Lord as much as they would love it. It would be their focus. David had expressed concern before about Solomon's youthful inexperience and his own need to compensate for this by preparing materials for the temple. David knew he was about to die. If you look at the end of of verses 29 to 30, you see his death. David knew he was approaching death, and he was trying to set up all the resources Solomon needed so that Solomon could could build that temple. Verse 2. Now, with all my ability, what a phrase, I have provided for the house of my God the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, the wood for the things of wood, the onyx stones, the inlaid stones, stones of uh, antimony, and stones of various colors. All kinds of precious stones and alabaster in abundance. Moreover, In my delight, in the house of my God. What a phrase. The treasure I have of gold and silver, I give to the house of my God, over and above all that I had already provided for the holy temple. There's a lot in there. David had already provided a lot of his treasure for the building of this temple And here at the end, he breaks the piggy bank and pours everything else he has out and says, let's use this for God's temple. Over and above what he'd already given. Then he itemizes it. Namely, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Afir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the buildings. Just, just, Just think about this for a moment. The walls of this building were lined with gold, gilded with silver. Can I give you a staggering figure? Israel's finest gold was imported from Afir from 2 Chronicles 8.18. And when you add up the amounts that David had given, just hold on to this. David gave for the temple 110 tons of Of gold and 260 tons of silver. It tells you how wealthy the Lord had prospered the reign of David. Verse 5: Of gold for things of gold, and silver things of silver, that is, for all the work done by the craftsman, who then is who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord. David is appealing for each giver to consecrate himself. It reads literally, fill your hands, be ready to give. Everyone was to follow David's example. What David had in the treasury would have probably been enough, but he wanted them to participate so that they could have ownership and sacrifice for the temple and for the Lord's eyes to see that nothing was more important than him and his worship. Verse six, then the rulers of the fathers' households and the princes of the tribes of Israel and tribes of Israel and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with overseers over the king's work offered willingly. They obeyed, they followed suit, and for the service of the house of God they gave. Five thousand talents and ten thousand derricks of gold and ten thousand talents of silver and eighteen thousand talents of brass and hundred thousand talents of iron. This is given so we know that they gave and gave sacrificially. Whoever possessed precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in care of Jehiel the Gershonite. This was. Now think about what's going on. What's going on here? Why would they have these precious stones? for precious jewelry, for necklaces, in our vernacular, for wedding rings. And they gave to the temple. Then the people were so sad that they had lost so much. No, then the people, verse 9, rejoiced because they had offered so willingly. For they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart. And King David also rejoiced greatly willing response to the needs of the Lord's worship. It produced a great rejoicing in the part of the king and of the people. And still today, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. Now we come to the text I read. So, as a consequence, now here's the context, David prayed. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly and David said... Blessed are you, blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand is power and might and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone or anyone. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise you and praise your glorious name. And then he goes on to talk, talk about the fact in verse 14, who are, who are we that were able to offer such generosity because all things come from you. Aaron, let us in a great scripture reading earlier, where Isaiah 66 says, "Where is the house you're going to build for me? You do know that I made all the things that make up this house." David affirms that. He talks about their sojourning in the in the wilderness. Look at verse 18. "O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your fathers, our fathers, preserve this." forever in the intentions of the heart of your people and direct their heart to you. This goes to motive. This goes to heart. And then in verse 20, all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed low and did homage to the Lord and to the King. Is it possible that the reason that we don't worship like this is that there are too many adult forms of Chuck E. Cheese and distractions in our lives, in our pleasures, in our satisfactions. This leads to a brief discussion of comparatives and superlatives. If you're an English-minded person, you understand instantly what those two are and how they're distinguished. And nowhere is that more important than how we think about God, Webster's talks about the superlative use of language. It's of relating to, or constituting the degree of grammatical comparison that denotes an extreme or unsurpassed level or extent, surpassing all others. It's of the highest order. highest degree. That's superlative. And it usually is has EST at the end. Best, highest. Bestest, I like that. Um, Most glorious. All of those E-S-T and S words that say not just compared but better. Now, the comparative degree is is important. The comparative degree is usually denoted by the suffix E-R. Better, higher. God is better, God is higher than anyone He can be compared to, but He's not just comparative, He's superlative. He's best and highest. Highest. So with a, I want to go back to verses 10 to 13 and focus our attention there. Elsie Allen comments when he talks about this prayer, he says this. This is great. David's prayer ransacks the theological dictionary as he grasps for terminology to express his high view of God. He ransacks the theological dictionary. He, he almost runs out of superlatives. John Hicks claims that, quote, this is one of the most paradigmatic or exemplary prayers in all the Bible, end quote. And he's right. So if we unpack it right, I think we can find some superlatives of God here that not only feed our worship, but that also pull us to a higher view of God so that He is the highest in our minds and we have a high view of God. So let's... Find those together. I want to find with you eight superlatives that reflect a high view of God. Now, in fairness, I could have had 14, okay? But we're going to group some things together. And uh, someone says, well, how how many points should a sermon have? And the answer is as many as the text has. And there's a lot of them in this one. So we're going to hold on tight and take a ride with David on this train of praise that he's kind of hooking our minds to. Eight superlatives that reflect a high view of God. And these are the views of God, a vision of God that we should have individually so that it informs our corporate worship. We will not have a high view of God as a church unless as individuals we maintain a high view of God ourselves. The first one is that God is unsurpassed in greatness. None greater, no, no one, nothing greater. He is unsurpassed in greatness. Verse 10, so David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly and said, blessed are you, or blessed are you, O Lord. That's a strange thing. How does David bless God? The Hebrew term is barak. We can, what usually carries the idea of blessed, but it can also mean to lift up, to praise, to make much of We usually think of it being God who blesses us, and it is. But sometimes we see this term used about a worshiper blessing God. Nehemiah 8.6, Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people said, Amen and Amen. And they bowed low and worshipped. Psalm 145, verse 21, My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless His holy name, forever and ever. And then the most famous articulation of that, I'm sure you're already singing, right, in your mind, from Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. This is an incredible prayer of David and a song that he wrote where he's actually singing and preaching to his heart. He's talking to himself, You, heart, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all this within me, everything, bless, make much of His holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. How do you do that? And forget none of His benefits. You will not praise and bless God unless those ideas for praise are supplied by reasons to praise. So David starts itemizing. Who pardons all your iniquities. Is that worthy of praising God? That you're forgiven for your sins in this side of the cross. We know that he did it at the expense, at the cost, at the sacrifice, at the execution, at the crushing of his own son in our place. Who heals all your diseases. He's the controller of our bodies who redeems your life from the pit. He can rescue us from any situation. Who crowns your, you with loving kindness and compassion. I love this. Who satisfies, what a word, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Bless the Lord. Acknowledging him, blessing him, giving him honor and do the honor that's due his name, making much of God blesses him. Blessed are you, verse 10 says, O Lord, God of Israel. He goes back to identifying that the God of Israel is their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Gives the lineage in that phrase, our Father forever and ever. Not just a distant God, our Father who knows, who cares. Verse 11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness. The Hebrew is an interesting construction here. It says, belonging to you is the greatness. And the idea is belonging to you alone. Gedula. Greatness, dignity, Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable or unfathomable. You cannot plumb the depth of that part of the ocean. Your string reaches the end and you're not to the bottom. That's the idea. His greatness is unsearchable. Then I love this. Parents, listen to this. One generation shall praise your works to another. There's an entire parenting course in that phrase. One generation praises God to another. Let me tell you what's great about our God, what He's done, who He is, what He's like. And you shall, and shall declare your mighty acts. Look at what God has done in the pages of His Word. Look at what God has done in the life of our family. On the glorious splendor of Your majesty and on Your wonderful works, I Will meditate. I will think on these things, which generates praise. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. Can we just be convicted for a minute? It ought to be, according to David's example, that our conversations with each other should should orbit around our great God what He's done, who He is, what He's doing in the pages of His Word and in the chronicles of our own lives. First Chronicles 20, 16, 25, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Great is the Lord. And our praise should be commensurate. It should be great as well. Psalm 48.1, the Lord, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God and his holy mountain. Are you are you personally persuaded that nothing, not money, not things, not purchases, not popularity or honor or praise of yourself, not any relationship no leisure, no pleasure, no sport, no toy, whether a child or adults, we have our own toys, as it were, no friend, that nothing, are you convinced, are you persuaded that nothing will bring you the satisfaction that your sinful, aching, guilty heart desires except a great God. Because nothing will. Is God unsurpassed in greatness in your heart? We sing it sometimes. Do you mean it? Is he your all in all? What a great God. Secondly, God is unsurpassed in power. Yours, O oh Lord, belonging to you, O oh Lord, and He gives another in this list is the greatness and the power. Gabura, might, refers to royal power. God is king and he is all power as the king of the universe and the creator. He is unsurpassed in that which can be honored in the human heart. Do you here's the question. Do you believe, and it comes down to one one critical word when we worship the Lord for his power, do you believe that God is, here's the word, God is able, he is able to meet your needs, to answer your prayers, to give you your wants and desires, to not give you what is not good for you, Do you understand that in His power relies prerogative? Will you believe that God is able to satisfy your soul and solve your every difficulty with Himself? Do you believe not in the power of prayer, but do you believe in the power that you can pray to the all-powerful, almighty one? He's unsurpassed. In power. There's a whole lesson on prayer in that simple statement. Number three, God is unsurpassed in glory. Yours, O oh Lord, belonging to you is the greatness and the power and the glory. Now, this is not the typical Hebrew word for glory, which is kavoth, it's tepura, which means, are you ready for this? Beauty, attractiveness. It's The beauty of God. Now, I want to confess to you, those of you there's a few of you who are old enough to remember this, and the rest of you just trust me for a minute. But as a high schooler, I was introduced to a song that I really liked, but it, it landed on me really funny. Remember, I'm a high school guy, I'm an athlete. I'm, I'm trying to be masculine. And then I'm singing the song at church by Keith Green, "Oh Lord, you're beautiful." And I remember thinking... That's a weird thing to say about God. Because there's a girl in my chemistry class who I think is beautiful. And I don't, one of these things is not like the other. Never as beautiful as Kim. Just want to let you know that. What does it mean that, Lord, oh, Lord, you're beautiful? What does it mean that God is great in beauty? Think of this. He's great in attractiveness. He's attractive because of who he is and what he's like, to understand that pulls us in attraction to him. He's desirable. He is, in the purest sense, beautiful. That's why we recognize in aesthetics the beauty in our world is we have some imago day stamp on our heart that has a faint hint of a recognition of Beauty. Of what's attractive. God, when rightly known, will be attractive to your heart. We find things attractive about God in His attributes, which are appealing. They draw us in. Is God attractive to you? Can you sing with a full heart, Oh Lord, you're beautiful. And understand that there's an attraction of our heart to the Lord. Number four, God is unsurpassed in victory. Yours, Lord, Lord, belonging to you is greatness and power and glory and the victory, hafats, strength, victory, perpetuity. God always wins. Now I know what you're thinking. Whoa, time out. Have you read the newspaper? It doesn't look like he's winning today. Watch this. God always wins in His time and eventually. He's always the victor. But the game is not over until heaven. God is undefeated in the history of the world. Even apparent defeats of His people, the Babylonian captivity, the Syrian captivity, the crucifixion of our Savior, which looks like defeat, God uses in demonstrations of his victories. All things work together for good, Romans 8, 28 says, to them that love God and who are called according to his purpose. So David looks and says, I don't care about the enemy surrounding us. There is always victory in God himself. Said another way, You cannot beat a Christian. Because according to Luke 12, the worst thing you can do to us is to kill us. And that brings us into heaven. If the great enemy of death is conquered, then what is anything you can do short of that? We win. Because we're on God's side. Number five, God has surpassed Unsurpassed, I should say, unsurpassed in majesty. Yours, O oh Lord, belonging to you is the greatness, the power, the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. Hear him ransacking the theological dictionary? What is majesty? Hoth, splendor, majesty, glory, vigor, honor. Majesty means it's more, he is more majestic than anything or anyone. It's a comparison word. Jeremiah 10.6, there is none like you, O Lord. None like you. You are great and great is your name in might. Exodus 15.11, Moses says, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. He is majestic. And to see him as he really is, is to have our hearts skip a beat and our mouths dry in incredible adoration that he is overwhelmingly majestic in who he is and in what he does. He's amazing and we should be amazed. He's different and above us. David is... You would think by this point he's running out of adjectives, but he doesn't. There's more. Number six, God is unsurpassed in sovereignty. I'm grouping some things together. Like I told you, we could have 14 or 16 descriptions, but I wanted to finish today. Verse 11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness. We've already seen that. And the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed... He stops and has a footnote for himself. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, the kingdom. You're the king, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Sovereignty we usually think of as God's control over everything, and it is. But sovereignty in the etymology of the word means kingly. A sovereign is a king. And by the way, notice at the end of verse 11, God exalts himself as head over all, sovereign, the king over all, over heavens, over the earth, what you can see in the heavens, what you can see around you, yours is the rule, the dominion. I think, my suspicion is this is where Jesus, who was the best prayer who ever lived, and he always prayed scriptural thoughts, he probably borrowed this phrase when he said, yours is the kingdom in the disciples' prayer of Matthew 6. He probably remembered exactly what David said. Thine is the kingdom, yours is the kingdom. That's what David is saying. God is creator, sustainer, and sovereign over all heavens and earth, big and small, galaxies and microscopic Subatomic particles, he, he is overall. Abraham Kuyper has famously written, you probably have heard this many times. Kuyper says, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine. He's right. What about us? What about God's greatness in us? Number seven, God is unsurpassed in sufficiency. Verse 16, verse 12, rather, both riches and honor come from you. That's what people want. They want stuff. And they want to be respected. God is in charge. God is the giver and taker of life and wealth and blessing and honor. Everything we need, riches, everything we want, honor comes from our great God. Said another way, all resources for life come from God. We'll see uh, in a few weeks the sufficiency of God's word that. In his word is given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have everything we need and it all comes from him. All of our resources come from God. We ask him for what we need. We ask him for what we want. But do you recognize recognize how sufficient God is without you ever asking him to be? having lunch with a friend this week. We prayed for our meal. And then we talked for a few minutes about the fact that neither of us that morning had woke up woken up and said, "Lord, give us this day our daily bread." Now, I'm very aware that we have people in and around our church who struggle financially and sometimes Creating the resource, finding the resources rather to 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 eat is, is a challenge. And if that's ever the challenge, please call our office. Please, please call our office. But if you had breakfast this morning, I wonder how many, if any of us woke up this morning and said, Lord, feed me or I won't eat. When we thanked him for our giving us our daily bread, we recognize that he did that before we even ask him for it. What a God. He is sufficient to give us what we need and what we want. Unsurpassed in sufficiency. And number eight, he's unsurpassed in authority. In authority, and you rule over all. The ruler has rules, which means he has authority to tell us about our world and how to live and how life should go. In your hand is the power, is power and might. He again has the resources he needs to enact his rule. And when it looks from the newspapers like he might not be winning, know that he is. God is doing tens of thousands. More than that, maybe, of things in every action on the planet. All we see is the backside of the quilt. But there is another side out of which he's making his glorious majesty known. And we'll see it one day. In your hand it lies to make great and to strengthen everyone or anyone. What an incredible... Offer of his authority. He is not only the ruler. He's a good ruler. He's not only over, only over all. He's over you. And he cares. We call Jesus our Lord. Our Lord Jesus. You know what that means? Master. Ruler. Same idea. So after David ransacks the theological dictionary, verse 13, Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. God's authority is the application of His sovereignty. He rules over all, over all nations, over all rulers, over all politicians, over all elections, over all people, all over their positions, and He rules over every nuance of your life. As we said a few weeks ago, that junior high devotional, where is God when I can't get my locker open? We know the answer. He's there, but He cares about that. Bring all your requests to God, all of them, and everything by prayer and supplication. That's the solving of wars and the solving of our lost sock, he cares and he knows because he's the creator. Romans four seventeen at the end of the verse says, "God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist." There's his authority. His authority comes because he created everything and all should point back to him. Now, I would be remiss if we talked about a high view of God without talking about the reflex of our understanding about us. Isaiah had a high view of God in Isaiah 6. Remember, he's in the year of King Uzzah's death, all looked lost, all looked dismal finds himself in the temple worshiping. He, his senses are overwhelmed. There's probably a smoke of incense. There's, there's thunderous, loud claps of thunder and lightning and voices of angels and, and, and the, 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 the thresholds trembling. And he hears, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty when he got a taste of the greatness of God, you know what he did? He said, woe is me from a sinful man. To have a high view of God necessitates a low view of ourselves and a low view of man. So how do we develop that? Let me get you to maybe make a calibration in your mind. The key to developing a high view of God, a right view of God, and an accurate and a precise view of God is learning how to control your thinking. Obviously, be controlled by what Scripture informs you. You have to distinguish between thoughts, think about this, thoughts and thinking. Thoughts are what happen naturally in your mind. Thoughts are what your brain tells you, what your mind says to you. Thinking is what you say to your heart. Thinking is active. Thoughts are passive. Thoughts are what we listen to in our minds. Thinking is not listening to our thoughts. It is talking to our hearts. Thoughts are what we listen to. Thinking is what we say. And nowhere is that more important than our thoughts and thinking about God, remember that incredible indictment in Psalm 51, where God says in Psalm 51, 21, Psalm 50, rather, Psalm 50, verse 21, your problem, Israel, here's your problem, you thought I was just like you. Isaiah tells us his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are above our thoughts, and we have our mind washed and corrected by spending time in his holy word. So we should cultivate the greatness and the gravity of God. So that not only is church about God, but church is about God because men and women who love God have made much of God in their hearts. And when we get together, there's only one thing to make much of together, and that's God. It's reading our Bibles with a passion of a love relationship with our great God who has revealed Himself to us reading good books with friends, talking about God and truth as much as you can with the people who care and even with people who don't. This this shouldn't be a chore. We talk about what we love and what's most important to us. So if we're not talking about God, is it possible that He's not most important to us? It means changing the heart and motivation of our singing to God and about God with passion and focus and the worship that He deserves.